Well, this morning we're going to continue on with our journey through the book of 1 Corinthians. So I invite you to take your Bibles, your electronic devices, uh, or if you didn't bring a Bible with you, the Pew Bible, page 961, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We've entitled this series of messages, Course Correction. Because the course of the church in Corinth needed to be corrected. Uh, as we've seen, this was a church that was filled with all kinds of problems. And as we saw last week, in the first part of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there were some in the church, we don't know who they are, but there were some in the church who were questioning the resurrection. And so the Apostle Paul, in great detail... This is known as the resurrection uh, chapter in the Bible, is making clear Christ has risen from the dead. And last week we saw the gospel, that Jesus died, he was buried, he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That is the gospel we preach, that is the gospel we are saved by. I was doing a little research uh, this week, and I found back in American history that Thomas Jefferson was perturbed that there were pastors who were telling people that Thomas Jefferson was not a Christian and that he did not follow after Christ. So in response to that criticism, Thomas Jefferson decided that he would put out his version of the Gospels to show everyone that he was a believer. And actually, it's referred to sometimes as Thomas Jefferson's Bible. It was actually issued as a special edition by the Congress of the United States. So in Thomas Jefferson's Bible which would be Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he had all that he called the moral teachings of Jesus and eliminated everything that was supernatural. The closing words of Thomas Jefferson's Bible were these. They laid, there they laid Jesus and rolled a great stone to the mouth of the sepulcher and departed. That was the end of what he considered to be the Bible. He actually proved in what he was saying that he really wasn't a Christian. And that he did not, and I'm not saying that he ever claimed that he was a Christian, but he was very sensitive to the criticism that was coming to him by various pastors. But if you do not believe in the resurrection, then you don't believe the gospel. And that's what the Apostle Paul is going to deal with in the section that we're looking at this morning. The first thing I want us to see, if there is no resurrection, then, then what? What's true if there is no resurrection? Follow along, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning with verse 12. Now, 
If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Paul's saying, if part of the gospel, if the proclamation of the apostles is that Christ is raised from the dead, how can some of you there in the church say there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So there are those in Corinth that are saying there is no resurrection of the dead. Now, how would they arrive at that? They would arrive at that because they have bought in to Greek philosophy. See, the Greeks believed that the spirit and soul were good, but the body was evil. And actually, the body was a prison for you. You had to live within that body until death. Now, when you died, your soul spirit went on living in some type of oblivion someplace. So they would look and they would see that death is a good thing because it was freeing your soul and spirit from this body, which is evil. If you'll remember, the Apostle Paul addressed that in Acts chapter 17 when he preached on Mars Hill, when he you know, preached to them about the, the statue of the unknown God and was telling them about the true God, it says that many people listened to him until he started to talk about the resurrection of the dead. And when he talked about Christ's resurrection from the dead, many turned away and would not listen to him because the Greeks, in their philosophy, did not believe in the resurrection of the body. So therefore, this philosophy has entered into the church. This philosophy has captured the minds of members of this church, and the Apostle Paul has to make it clear to them the importance of the resurrection. So if there is no resurrection of the dead, he says in verse 13, and he will repeat it again in verse 16, Christ has not been raised. Now think about that. If there's no resurrection then even Christ has not been resurrected from the dead. And if Christ is not resurrected from the dead, and if there is no resurrection of the dead, he says in verse 14, our preaching is in vain. 
Now that word in vain means it's without content. It is of no purpose. It's fruitless. It's void of effect. It is characterized by nothingness. Absolutely void. It's imaginary. Paul is saying that as he and the apostles go about preaching the gospel, if you take out the resurrection of the dead, if you take out the fact that Christ has been resurrected, then it's all nothingness. It's complete and total foolishness. I think Paul says that someplace else, doesn't he? That the preaching of the cross is what? Foolishness to those who are perishing. And Paul is saying, if Christ is not risen, if there is no resurrection, then what we proclaim is total and complete foolishness. That's how important the resurrection is. He says, not only does it mean that Christ has not been raised, not only does it mean that our preaching is in vain, it also means our faith is in vain. Uses the same word for our faith. Just as preaching is complete foolishness, it's complete foolishness for us to believe in something that never occurred. All of that would be true if Christ has not been raised. He then goes on in verse 15, and he says, the apostles lied about God. They lied about God. They lied about his power. If there's no resurrection, if Christ has not been raised, then the apostles are a bunch of liars. And think of the implications of that for a moment. Every one of the 11 disciples, you know, we take Judas out of that, we have the other 11, every one of them, with the exception of John the Apostle, we are told in history, not necessarily in the scriptures, but in history, that they all died martyrs' deaths. They all gave up their lives for the truth of the gospel, for the truth of proclaiming that Christ is the only way of salvation, that Christ died on the cross for our sins, that he was buried and he rose again the third day. They were all willing to die for it. Not a single one changed his story about that. And they go all over the known world proclaiming and preaching this. But Paul says, if there is no resurrection, then all the apostles are liars. Now, let me ask you a question. How much are you willing to suffer for a lie? If you know something is untrue and people are persecuting you, how long are you going to hold on to that lie? So we are being asked to believe by those who reject the resurrection of Jesus that all the apostles were liars and all of them were willing to hold on to that lie even to the end of their life, and with almost every one of them, with the exception of John, it was to death. Paul says that's the implication if there is no resurrection. 
He goes on then in verse 17 and says, if there is no resurrection, then our faith is futile. Now, we saw earlier the words vain used for our preaching's vain, our faith is vain. He says here, our faith is futile. And this is an even stronger word than vain. Uh, It's a word that means totally and completely pointless. A total, complete waste of time. Our faith is futile if it is true that there is no resurrection. He then says in verse 18, think through the implications of this as well. It means that those who have died in Christ have perished. Your loved ones who put their faith and trust in Jesus. If there is no resurrection of the dead, they're just completely gone. You'll never see them again. They're not with Christ in heaven. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then those who have died in Christ had a faith, remember, that was vain, a faith that is futile. They were deceived. It was nothing. And this life is all that there is. And when it's over, it's over. And if you've buried a a loved one, if you said goodbye to a loved one in Christ, the apostles have lied to you. They have preached to you that which is untrue. And those who died in faith are completely gone. That's what's true if there is no resurrection. And Paul says in verse 19, he says, if we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be pitied. Believers are to be pitied if there is no resurrection. Think about it. There are those who are gathered here this morning who have put your faith and trust in Christ. And that faith and trust in Christ decides uh, the direction of your life. It affects every decision that you make. Because you are followers of Jesus. And we, we do that, first of all, because we love him. But our love for him is someone, because if there's no resurrection, he has not been resurrected. We have a love for a historical figure who is now gone. We're to be pitied. We've given our life. Many of us have sacrificed of our time, of our talents, of our possessions. We have sacrificed to give for this message to go throughout the whole world. And we've all been deceived. So the world should look at us 
and pity us because in their opinion, we will have missed living and enjoying the pleasures of sin and of this world. All of this is true if there is no resurrection. But, oh, I'm thankful for this. Let's look at the facts. In verses 20 to 28, the Apostle Paul lays out the facts. Listen to what he says. But in fact, this is the truth. Don't miss it. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all things, or he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepting who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son, son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So let's look at the facts. Paul says, let me lay out the facts for you. Fact number one, and it influences everything else that follows. Christ has been raised. Boy, there should be more amens than just that, my friends. Christ, I think you may not have heard me this morning. Christ has been raised. That is the basis of of our faith. Remember we talked last week. This is what separates Christianity for, from every other religion that's out there in the world. We serve a living Savior. He defeated death, and because he can defeat death, he gives power to us that we are able to defeat death. He talks about Christ being the first fruits of the resurrection. Now, the first fruits is a technical term from the Old Testament. It's something that the, the Jewish people there in Corinth especially would understand. What are the first fruits? In the Old Testament sacrificial system, there were many offerings they were to bring to God. And one of the types of offerings that was a principle was what's called the first fruits. So when they were an agricultural type nation, so when they were growing their crops, 
the first fruit that came on the plants, they were to bring to the tabernacle and later to the temple as a sacrifice to God. Now, why did God have them do that? Because first of all, it was a test of faith. Will you test me by giving to me of your first fruits? And that applied not only to the plants they grew, it also applied to their animals. The first male born animal was to be brought to the Lord as a sacrifice. And they would bring that in faith because what they're saying by offering that to God is, God, we can trust you by giving of our first, by giving of our best, we can trust you by giving that to you that you are going to provide for us. And so it's a sacrifice of bringing their first in faith, in trusting God. Also, it is not only a sacrifice, but through that faith, it is also a pledge of saying, God's going to send more. He's going to send more. We can trust him to do that. And there were all kinds of things built into the law in the Old Testament for the purpose of people to trust God. And so notice what Paul is saying here. Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. He is the promise that many more will follow. And that's all the believers in Jesus. Christ is the first fruits. He is risen. And that is the pledge, the promise that there are many more to come who will be resurrected. In verse 22, Paul says that all believers are made alive. In Christ, we are made alive. In verses 24 and 25, he talks about now looking out into the future And he talks about Christ is going to deliver the kingdom to his father. Now, I know there at the end of those verses, there were a lot of things that were being said there that upon first hearing them, you may say, what in the world is he talking about? But just as Christ was the first fruits of the resurrection, Christ is the promise and the fact that he was risen from the dead and that believers are made alive in him, that there's coming a day. The Old Testament talked about the kingdom a lot. Jesus, when he was here on earth, talked about the kingdom. There's coming a day when Christ will establish his kingdom, and at the end of that kingdom, at the end of that millennial reign, by Christ, millennial thousand-year reign, he will offer up that kingdom to his Father. And we'll see what follows here in doing that. But in, we see a picture of that in Revelation chapter 20 in verses 7 to 10. And I put the verses up on the screen for you. It says, And when the thousand years are ended, 
Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So there's coming a day. You remember this when we went through the series on Satan. There is coming a day when Satan's number is up. For a thousand years, he was in the shaft that leads down to the abyss or the bottomless pit. During the millennial reign of Christ, where Christ rules and reigns with a rod of iron. And friends, where we as believers in Christ will reign with him here on the earth. At the end of those thousand years... Satan is released, and he leads a rebellion against God. Now think of this, and I know that it puzzles many of us, but after a thousand years of perfect justice on this earth, with Christ ruling, so we know everything will be done, you know, according to the truth, during these thousand years, at the end of the thousand years, there will be a great multitude of people who will still rebel against God. It's proof that being put in the perfect environment does not guarantee that people are going to follow God. Adam and Eve were put in a perfect environment. And what did they do? They rebelled against so let me just go on a rabbit trail for just a minute. I didn't plan to do this, but I want to be an encouragement to some of you as parents who are dealing with kids who are rebelling against following after God. And, and you, you wonder, what did we do wrong? Can I say to you, quit blaming yourselves? Some of you have kids out of the same house. They grew up in the same home. And what? They're as different as night and day from one another. One's committed in following the Lord and one's rebelling against the Lord. And all you do is look at everything you did wrong. And can I say to you this morning, you did things that were wrong. Okay? There's not a perfect parent here. You know, I look back on the, the raising of my two kids and there are things I'd like to have a do-over on. Can you relate to me, parents? Are there things you'd like to do over? Sure, there are things we would like to do over. But the reality is, especially as our kids are grown and move into adulthood, they are responsible for their decisions. And they have made choices. I can remember hearing many years ago, a Christian psychologist, where the question was asked of him, can you tell us the best parenting uh, program we can use to guarantee that our kids will all end up following Christ? And he laughed. And he says, let me tell you what I've learned through years of counseling. 
He says, pretty much any program, as long as you're striving to obey God with your kids, will work. But the reality is this. When kids turn out good, the parents take way too much credit for it. And when kids turn out bad, they take way too much blame for it. Is there a person among us this morning that's going to blame God because Adam and Eve rebelled? And no one's going to point a finger at God at the end of time and blame him that they did not follow him. So that's just a rabbit trail to give you a little encouragement as parents. Just keep praying. Keep praying. And lift your children up to the Lord. And young people, I want to say to you this morning, the gospel is true. The Bible is true. You have a choice to make whether you're going to follow God or not. But you will have to live with the consequences of the choices that you make. And so will everyone who has ever lived. Christ, after a thousand years of ruling perfectly, will have people rebel against him. But notice, at the end of that thousand years, that final rebellion, that's it, folks. That's it. Satan and his followers are all cast into the lake of And then God is going to, Jesus is going to take the kingdom now that every enemy has been defeated. And we see in verse 26 that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. There'll be no more death. And he's going to take that kingdom. You see in verses 26 to 28 that all things are under Christ. And then when all enemies are defeated, death is defeated, everyone is defeated, he is going to take that kingdom and he's going to present it to his father. And God will be all in all. Those are the facts. Not to be debated. This is the truth and the implications of the resurrection and the gospel. Verse 28, I like the way that the New Living Translation puts it. Then when all things are under his authority, the Son will put himself under God's authority so that God who gave his Son authority over all things will be utterly supreme over everything, everywhere. God is all in all. Now, before we leave this section, however, the Apostle Paul is going to address some issues. Uh, He's going to talk about a few things with the people there in Corinth. And we see that in verses 29 to 34. Uh, You know, honestly, the first part of this, I would have rather Paul just kind of eliminated because it creates a problem to understand exactly what he's talking about. So bear with me. Let's look at verses 29 to 34. Paul says, Otherwise, 
What do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Okay, Paul decides he would jump into some issues that were pertinent there in Corinth. The first one is the baptism for the dead. What in the world does that mean? There are actually, someone has estimated, over 200 different views as to what it means when Paul talks about the baptism for the dead. Now, one view is that view that is held by the Mormons, and make no mistake about it, Mormonism is a cult. It is not just another branch of Christianity. Mormonism is a cult. And the Mormons have a practice of baptizing people for the dead. And so someone today would get baptized for someone who has previously died. You know, some of the best genealogical records in the world are held by the Mormon church. You know, if you're looking for your ancestors in that, uh, they have some of the best records. You know why they have those records? It's because they want to discover all their relatives and get baptized for them so that their relatives may be able to make it into heaven. Uh, I read of one Mormon uh, person that has been baptized, I don't know, maybe tens of thousands of times. Because the statement was made of him, through him being baptized, he's probably saved more people than Jesus himself did. Listen, being baptized for someone who is already dead is not going to save the person who is dead. We are saved by grace through faith. And when a person dies, his eternal destiny is settled. So what Paul is talking about here is not that being baptized for the dead can save anyone, but I think the argument that Paul is making here is among the different false religions in Corinth, this was a practice that they did. They would baptize people for people who were already dead. And I think the argument that Paul is making is they are denying the resurrection of the body on one hand, 
And at the same time they're denying the resurrection of the body, they are being baptized for people who have already died. And Paul's argument is, I believe, uh, they are inconsistent in what they believe because why are they being baptized for people who have died when they believe there is no future for the people who have died? And I think Paul is just trying to appeal. Not that he is endorsing baptism for the dead. He is not, but he is just arguing based on what the people are already doing and saying, why are they even doing this if they don't believe in a future resurrection? He then talks about the issue of persecution in those verses 30 to 32. Paul talks about being in danger every hour. And the Apostle Paul, if you study his life, you're going to see that he went through all kinds of things. And he was in danger. Even after he was converted and he started to preach, they had to send him over the wall of the city in a basket because people were going to try to kill him. Paul was such a proponent for Christianity, they wanted to get rid of him. And so Paul talks about being in danger every hour. He talks about, he says, I die every day. Now what does he mean by that he dies every day? That is probably a bad translation of the words when it says I die every day. Uh, many believe that the Greek words used there mean every day I am in danger of death. That Paul is saying, there's not a simply a day that goes by that I don't have to be on my guard that someone may try to kill me because of my faith in following Jesus Christ. Paul talks about the persecution he faced when he fought with the wild beasts in Ephesus. Now, what does he mean by that? Did he, some would say that what he means by that is they put him in the arena and he was forced to, to fight with wild beasts there. That is probably not the correct interpretation. Paul was a Roman citizen. Roman citizens were not put into a place where they were forced in an arena to fight with wild beasts. If they were literal wild beasts, it would probably be listed in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul gives everything that he went through as an apostle and as following Christ, but fighting with wild beasts is not included in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. So then what does he mean that he fought with the wild beasts in Ephesus? In Ephesus, if you'll remember, there was a riot that took place there because of the gospel. And Demetrius, the, the silversmith, and others wanted to put Paul to death. And Paul is referring to his enemies, human beings that were his enemies, that they acted like wild beasts in seeking to destroy him. So what we're seeing, Paul, in the issues, he's talked about the baptism for the dead, he's talking about the persecution that he has personally faced because of his stand for the gospel and the truth of the resurrection. 
He also talks in these verses about deception. And he tells people not to be deceived. And he says bad morals or bad company will ruin good morals. That's a lesson for all of us. The people we hang out with will affect the way that we think and the way that we see things. That doesn't mean as Christians we are to have no contact with the lost. We're to have contact with the lost to try to lead them to come to Christ. But those who are opposed to the gospel message, and in this case, in the context of talking about the resurrection, I think Paul is talking about those who are teaching and are saying there is no resurrection if you continue to hang out with them, the way they live will affect you. Because if there's no resurrection, Paul said, he already said we're to be pitied, right? If there is no resurrection and this life is all there is, then we may as well eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die and everything is over with. And, dear Christian friends, if we hang out with people that that is their attitude, they're our best friends, and that's their attitude, it will affect you. And that's why Paul is giving that warning. And he then tells us, don't be deceived, wake up. And don't go on sinning. Because those of us who have a knowledge of God know Christ has been raised. We will be raised. We'll be a part of his kingdom. But we are also accountable to him. Warren Worsby has written, The resurrection of the human body is a future event that has compelling implications for our personal lives. If the resurrection is not true, then we can forget about the future and live as we please. But the facts are, Christ is indeed risen from the dead. He is alive. And because he's alive, he's the first fruits so that we can be alive. So I say to you, first of all, this morning, are you a follower of Jesus? Yes. He's risen from the dead. And the one that is risen from the dead, if you believe in him, as in Christ all shall be made alive, all who will put their faith and trust in him can be and will be saved by believing the gospel that Christ died for your sin that he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. If you haven't believed that, if you haven't embraced that, it is of the utmost importance that you put your faith and trust in Christ and in him alone. And for the rest of us who heartily agree, we believe this, this is true, we have a message to proclaim to those who are perishing around us and our belief in our future life with him. 
should make a difference in the way we live our lives. That we will seek, as Paul did, to honor him and to please him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for the resurrection of Jesus. And we are so thankful, Lord, that Jesus did come and die so that we could be saved. And we pray that you'll help us that we might live our lives in light of the truths of your word, that we might bring glory to the one who has saved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.